Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this episode we're talking with an expert about regenerative medicine. So the field of regenerative medicine is likely to significantly change how we practice medicine in the future with some amazing capabilities harnessing the power of stem cells to restore form and function of damaged tissue, cardiac, musculoskeletal, hepatic neural, pulmonary, salivary, amongst many others. The potential of regenerative medicine has already been recognized in the areas of immunotherapy and bone marrow transplantation. However, the future is likely to see many further shiny examples of its promise, application and capability. Consider the possibility of injecting cardiac stem cells into the surrounding viable ventricular myocardium adjacent to an acute myocardial infarction, providing functioning myocardial cells to restore cardiac output, or printing a larynx after its removal following the diagnosis of cancer and seeding this with new laryngeal cells, or providing new cartilage or bone where there's been destructive arthritic change or a vascular necrosis, replacing neurons damaged by neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, or indeed replacing a damaged organ such as a cirrhotic liver allowing restored hepatic synthetic function. A group of scientists at St Vincent's Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne with co-lead researcher Kiria Yap are attempting to do just that. Following a breakthrough over four years ago, their team has the aim of growing entire lobes of the liver by taking patient's blood and carefully reprogramming cells to become stem cells. This technology became available after the amazing techniques described by Sir John Gurdon and Shinya Yamanaka, who discovered that mature cells can be reprogrammed to become pluripotent, leading to their 2012 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. It is known that about 7,000 Australians die each year from chronic liver disease and that 260 livers are transplanted each year between Australia and New Zealand. So if this bold project is successful, it will provide significant value to patients suffering with advanced and deteriorating liver disease. After genetically reprogramming cells to become pluripotent stem cells, the application of very specific nutrients exerts the appropriate epigenetic effects to induce tiny liver cells. The plan is to implant these into the groin of patients where the small liver buds will be supported by the patient's blood vessels before the liver lobe is eventually harvested and transplanted to replace the diseased organ. In Australia alone, there are approximately 124,700 patients on the transplant waiting list for an organ, underpinning the incredible importance and potential application of this work. I was very excited to learn of Kiryu's work at St Vincent's Institute of Medical Research and greatly honoured that he accepted the invitation to join our conversation on the podcast. Please welcome Kiryu. Dr. Kiryu Yap. Okay. Thank you for joining me on Everyday Medicine. Welcome, Kiryu. How are you? I'm very well, Luke. Thanks yeah. for having me. Well, it's very kind of you to, to make time and uh, on a late Monday evening. And uh, I've been drawn to having an interview, a discussion with you about regenerative medicine after seeing that article in the Herald Sun. Oh. And, you know, it, you could have really uh, doing some breakthrough research and work with St. Vincent's Institute of Medical Research. Well, I want to talk with you about that in some detail can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Kiru, like your journey here? Where, where, where have you come from? What, tell us about, you know, your surgical registry. Tell us about that. How did you get here? Sure. Um, no, look, I've had a fairly complicated path. Um, I'll probably start off by saying that I actually started in the research probably more about 12 years or so ago as a medical student. So I did an honours research here as part of medical degree at the University of Melbourne. 
Um, and I joined this group and this institute at that point, which was known as the O'Brien Institute, which at that point was doing some very exciting research in tissue engineering. So things that captivated my mind was the growing of human heart tissues inside a right beating heart tissue. Um, there was a clinical trial being planned for breast reconstruction for patients with breast cancers that have had resections and all sorts of other tissues, including pancreatic islets, for example, being grown in a laboratory. And I was very interested in joining a team doing that sort of research. So I hopped on and that was a great year. I went back into medical school, started clinical training, you know, went all the way into a couple of years into surgical training. Uh, and I always knew I wanted to go back to research. So I was always pottering away in the lab, you know, went to a few different types of labs. And I always knew I wanted to do a PhD. And I think one of those challenges were back in the day, we were still working with mouse cells, trying to work, make mouse tissues and organs in the laboratory. And I always knew I wanted to humanize that platform. And given my clinical background and the clinical network that we bring, I thought this was a great opportunity. And so the PhD gave me an opportunity to really humanize this platform, use stem cells to grow human liver tissue in a laboratory and work on transplantation systems for that. And just about to finish all of that, but we've been fortunate enough to have uh, and an HMRC grant, which is the focus of the Herald Sun article, which has really allowed us to broaden our team and to ask some of the really important clinical questions on how do we push our laboratory basic science research into a more translational space. And so I've been very fortunate that where I've joined has been a very interesting place where uh, the O'Brien Institute um, has a long history of microsurgery and reconstructive surgery research that spanned over the last 50 years. And the background behind that is how do you make tissues and organs survive? So, for example, in free flap surgery and vascular reconstruction and vascular anastomosis, and how do you pick the right size, uh, right sites of transplantation and how do you optimize those sites? And those are important questions in reconstructive surgery, but those are also very important questions in transplant surgery and more importantly in regenerative medicine in this day and age. So on that background, the O'Brien Institute has been able to grow all these sort of soft tissues in the laboratory and transplant them to generate large volumes of tissues inside the body of small animals, rodents, medium-sized animals, even large animals, and including a small clinical trial that was done in breast reconstruction. So there's been a lot of progress going on there. And in 2015, this merged with the St. Vincent's Institute of Medical Research that's all located on the St. Vincent's Hospital campus, which means that a lot of us clinicians, particularly surgeons, are involved in this type of research and this big mix of clinician scientists, of basic scientists, of just surgeons who provide input and mentorship in this campus that's co-located with research institutes in the hospital. And that's sort of now being merged towards this bigger picture of the Eichenhead Center of Medical Discovery, where a biomedical engineering center um, will amalgamate all this multidisciplinary expertise. And it brings people like myself and the team that's involved with myself and our clinical collaborators, all part of the St. Vincent's Hospital campus. So um, it's been a great opportunity. It's a real melting pot, isn't it? It's a special, it sure and, is, and, yeah. an intellectual melting pot. Yeah, I, I didn't know that so much was actually happening locally in Melbourne, so it was an eye opener for me to be introduced to you. Sure. Uh, can I go back a step and just ask you, just how would you define regenerative medicine? What, what really is it that you're doing? What What is that whole field? Sure, I think the uh, if you boil it down to the basic concept, it's really rebuilding and repairing anything that's lost, diseased, damaged, or that might have been resected due to, for example, cancer. The idea behind that really started from many, many years ago, 
possibly where we were doing bone marrow transplants, so the identification of hemopoietic stem cells, and you can do whole mm. blood transplants, and that can regenerate itself. Uh, other concepts include free flap transfers and skin grafts, for example, that allowed you to take something from one spot to another. That sort of then progressed towards um, the discovery of embryonic stem cells or stem cells per se, more recently into stem cells that can be manufactured in the lab through genetic reprogramming. So there's been an intersection between all these different types of research and sciences and medical fields. And now it's been broadly accepted where you can have anything from cell therapy, which is transplanting cells into the body to replace... Like the CAR, CAR T cell therapy. Correct. Yes. So that's yes. a type of cell therapy where you take cells from any sort of source and you put it back into the body mm. either to replace or to even promote the native regenerative process there are other things like bioprinting and biomedical engineering and scaffold biology and engineering that's involved there are other things including for example tissue engineering where we make large blocks of tissues from stem cells either in combination with scaffolds or extracellular matrix these might be grown in systems like bioreactors, for example. There are lots of different types of stem cells that can be used to recreate all sorts of tissues and organs. And regenerative medicine is not just a creative process where we're trying to make new things to replace, but these systems also allow us to interrogate disease processes, understand them, and to identify new therapeutic targets as well as test new drugs in the laboratory. So it's a real sort of 360 system where it's not just, um, you know, it's really evolving where you can do disease modeling, drug testing, you can look at developmental biology, how do cells come together to generate an organ. And then you've got what we, a lot of people traditionally think of, which is where we try to replace or, re or repair things. So that's sort of a broad description mm -hmm. of the regenerative medicine field. Where are you taking the uh, stem cells from? Where, where do you harvest them from? Sure. So we first started doing this by taking stem or progenitor cells from the liver. So as you might know, a lot of us understand the liver is something that you can cut, for example, in clinical hepatectomy and it can regenerate. Now, traditionally, it's always been thought that it's a stem cell driven process, but we now know that that's not really the case. That's just a hypertrophy and hyperplasia process of the mm. remnant cells. Mm. What we know is during embryonic development and in certain disease processes, when the native cells cannot proliferate, then a stem cell compartment becomes mobilized. And we can isolate that stem cell compartment to recreate more liver in the laboratory. And that's what we were doing many years ago, both in the mouse in the last five years or so in humans. But in 2007 or so, a new technology called human-induced pluripotent stem cells was discovered. And this discovery actually won a Nobel Prize in 2012. But the idea behind this is that any cell in the body can be hair, it could be from urine, it could be a cheek swab, it could be from blood, for example. Any cell in the body can be genetically reprogrammed by inserting embryonic pluripotency factors and what that means is it reverts a mature cell into an embryonic stem cell-like state. What it also means is that that cell now has the potential to generate any cells of the three germ layers if you can manipulate the culture conditions artificially in the lab. So if I wanted to make hepatocytes in my case, for example, I need to give it the growth factors in the sequence and the time sequence where growth factors are being provided to these cells to mimic the liver developmental process. I can do the same thing with blood vessels. I can do the same thing with immune cells and other people are doing brain and heart and kidney. So all sorts of tissues can be generated from all the three gen layers. So we have now 
trans sort of integrated this platform that we originally developed into a completely IPSC derived platform, which means I can have a patient who might be well, but I can make generate IPSC and have that insurance policy because these cells can be expanded indefinitely. I can store them in liquid nitrogen and run required. I can bring them up to the lab. Or if I have a patient who I know has liver disease and at some point might need new livers, then I can start making new livers on demand in the lab in unlimited quantities. And that all starts from really just a sample of blood, for example, which is what we're doing right now, 10 mils of blood. And so that's a remarkable autologous platform of scalable cells. And that's really what we're working on right now. I had no idea that was possible. So you're taking a mature cell and you're kind of, uh, you're doing the Benjamin Button on it. You're taking it right yeah, back to its, exactly right. uh, it, to like its, uh, its pluripotent sort of, uh, I, I did not appreciate that. I thought you were taking these sort of pluripotent stem cells from somewhere, wasn't quite sure where from, and then you were manipulating the environment. So you, you had uh, some kind of epigenetic effect on those cells. I d- didn't appreciate this is what you were doing. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. Well, yeah. why, why did you choose the liver? I, I saw your, in your bio, you've written a lot about the liver over a long period of time. It was that yeah. just, uh, and uh, something like 7,000 Australians do die from chronic liver disease. So it's no small uh, yeah. issue. And there's a, well, about 260 transplants, I think, in, of livers in Australia. But there's more yeah. kidneys that are transplanted. But why did you choose, why did you choose the liver? What, what drew yeah. you there? So, um, first opportunity. Not many groups are working on it. The fact that liver is an underrecognized organ yeah. is also an underrecognized disease. Yes. A group of diseases, despite the fact that, for example, fatty liver disease is one of yes. the most rapidly rising groups yes. of disease in the developing world. Liver yeah. cancer is rapidly rising as well, but still underrecognized. Yes. So there's a clinical need, and that also meant a challenge for us that we were up for. There's also the fact that the liver is a biologically complex organ, which is fascinating. So yeah. I spoke about the regenerative process earlier, but you know, here you've got an organ that has over 500 different metabolic processes in the body that's absolutely essential for function, but it's also made up of a whole different types of cells arranged in an intricate pattern that gives rise to this function. And that comes down to biology interplay between different cell types, between extracellular matrix, between oxygen gradients and nutrient gradients. A hormone signaling and interplay between the portal system and the systemic circulation, as well as we now know, for example, with the gut microbiota, as well as even brain. So, you know, it's a very physiologically and anatomically challenging organ, which means that it, it also means that there are a lot of things you can work on in the lab. So it makes for an interesting area to work in. There's all sorts of questions. There's an unlimited amount of questions we can answer in the lab. And I think some people will say, why don't you start with a bit uh, simpler organ, for example, perhaps even muscle or fat, for example, um, either morphologically simple or functionally more simple. But, you know, some of the challenges we're working on are unique to the liver and, and someone needs to do it. And I think, you know, we're up for that challenge. Well, I'm glad I, I can feel your passion and your energy and, and yeah. your intellect as well, Peter, because, you know, this is very complicated, uh, very complicated medicine. Um, and it must be fascinating yeah. working in this field. And I, I was wondering when I read the article about, you know, you can grow hepatocytes by this intricate and ingenious method that you've developed. What about the bile ducts, which are different? You, you were hinting at that a moment ago. So are you, have you been able to do that as well? Grow both yes. your hepatocytes and the bile duct? And are wonder how you get that structure together so it can be transplanted in a meaningful way. Yeah, so I'll start by saying this, that liver progenitor cells in the liver 
or you can call them stem cells. So by definition, liver progenitor cells can generate both hepatocytes and bile ducts. So that happens in your hepatoblasts, in the embryonic and fetal liver, in the adult liver, that also happens during liver regeneration. So we have a cell type that can generate two compartments in the liver, epithelial compartments in the liver. And so we can generate those liver progenitor cells from iPSC, and we can also generate hepatocytes and bile ducts. And we also have good evidence in the lab that now we can pattern these cell types to generate the polygonal hepatic plates that you see in liver. And we can also generate ductular structures that you might have from bile ducts um, that are formed by the cholangiocytes. Some of the challenges are how do you combine this together in the correct anatomical topography and how do you make sure you have the correct amounts of both? I don't think there's a clear answer to that. A lot of us work or rely on what we call self-assembly. So we put the cells in you know, enough that are probably similar to what you find physiologically or in the liver itself. Mm. Um, we give them the right sort of environment and then we let them do their work. So the cells have their own genetic machinery and their interaction between the cells and the environment that allows them to assemble into a tissue-like structure. Um, we add other cell types. We add blood vessels, for example, because we know that that can promote the engraftment of cells because if you have blood vessels within the tissue structures that we make in the lab, which we call organoids because they're organ-like, it also means that those blood vessels can rapidly connect to the host site of transplantation and bring blood into all hepatocytes and bile ducts around it. So self-assembly has been great in terms of making these liver-like structures. What we know is that we don't know all the signals that gives us the complete liver in the laboratory, but we also know that when we transplant it into the body, a lot of those signals are being provided and there's this great leap of maturation that happens and assembly that happens. So part of answering the questions that you're asking in terms of how do you actually make the bile ducts and how do you actually construct them relies on, yes, stem cell biology and you know giving the right environment, but it also requires a lot of big data analysis. So looking at transcriptional regulation of tissue morphogenesis and differentiation. Um, and we're doing that with collaboration with bioinformaticians, for example, looking at genetic se RNA sequencing and genetic sequencing and even proteomics and metabolomics data and looking at how these shifts can be analyzed to answer questions on what are the signaling pathways that govern this. And then the next question that comes from that is, do we have any drugs, growth factors, signaling molecules that we can then add into the environment to actually boost what we find in the lab? So that's what we're working on. But in terms of bile duct, we know we can generate bile ducts. We know we can transplant it and generate bile ducts. One of the questions that we're answering in this grant that was described in the Herald Sun article is, how do you reconnect it into the extrahepatic bile duct system. So you now not only have bile ducts in your bioengineered liver, but how do you actually connect it so bile drains in a physiological route, therefore into the gut system? And how do you have the bile acid circulation that happens both to keep the liver happy, so there's no hepatotoxicity, but bile acids are essential for a whole lot of other homeostatic processes. So you need to have that biliary connection in order to make sure you have functional liver. So we're looking at both the biology, but also the surgical side. So how do you actually transplant it? Where do you transplant it? Which bile ducts do you reconnect? And how do you connect both bile ducts, portal blood supply, and then the systemic blood supply to this bioengineered liver to really replace a liver lobe, for example, that will be akin to liver transplantation. But this time, it will be using livers that are generated using your own stem cells. It's fascinating. You, you are also transplanting, you're using the human body, the groin region, to, yes. to, to harvest that 
perhaps to draw upon some of these biofactors that you're mentioning before that we don't completely understand. But just explain that, can you? So you you get to a certain stage and then you're transplanting tissue into the groin. Have you done that already? Um, bits and pieces. I'll start by saying that um, the liver team hasn't done this in humans yet, but the general concept is to do with prefabricated free flap. So it's a reconstructive surgery concept. So mm -hmm. if you isolate a large blood vessel in the body and put a space around it in a case of a rigid chamber, then you have space around the blood vessel and the body doesn't like space or so always tries and fills it up with something. So um, it can be seroma, it can be plasma, it can be even pus, it can be fibrotic tissue. But if you've got a large blood vessel inside it, it fills it up by growing more blood vessels. So the idea behind this is you can make and artificially generate a very highly vascularized site. And you can also transplant cells, tissues together with extracellular matrix and scaffolds, for example. And that develops together with the blood vessels in a process that mimics the embryological development of organs together with vasculature. Now, what it also means is now you have all these cells and tissues that have grown in what we would envisage to be a whole liver lobe, but it's also connected to a major blood supply. So it's got an artery and a vein. So that means that we can lift it from that site and the groin is a good site because it's accessible. It means we can monitor it. If there's any issues, we can remove it. At least the vessels that we use, for example, the inferior epigastric artery and vein are vessels that can be sacrificed without any compromise to the circulation to the leg, for example. And that means you can lift that blood vessel and artery together with the liver that's grown around it. And then you can lift it into the portal space by resecting the diseased liver lobe and then reconnecting it. And questions we're answering is the dual blood supply of the liver and the bowel luct. And those are surgical challenges that we mm. aim to answer in this plan. But I would mention that this vascularized chamber is what we call it. This technology was developed many, many years ago by a reconstructive surgeon, Professor Wayne Morrison at the O'Brien Institute. And that has now been upscaled from rodent studies to rabbits to pigs. And that was the basis of the breast reconstruction trial that was done a couple of years ago. And certainly a lot of groups worldwide are now using this chamber technology. Gosh, it's fascinating. You'll have to develop the Kiru corset or the Kiru underpants. <laughs> Hold that big liver lobe down there. Yeah, good thing. Point. Oh my gosh, that looked like a big hernia. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be fascinating. Um, how close to success do you think you are? Is that an impossible question at this stage? To no, uh, I think I think everyone in the field and in regenerative medicine field uh, is realistic in the fact that there are major challenges along the way. We've just gotten over the major challenges of cell type, for example, with induced pluripotent stem cells. Other people are working on manufacturing, for example. So how do you create large volume bioreactors? And others are working on safety. So how do you genetically screen these cells to purify them for the cell types you want and to exclude potentially tumorigenic cells, for example. But there are clinical questions that haven't been answered, and that's what we're trying to do here. For example, what is the best site to grow the largest volume of liver in the body? How do you reconnect it to its anatomical site with its blood vessels and bile duct drainage? How much do you put in to make sure that you can replace actual liver? And what sort of patients are appropriate for this type of treatment? And how do you screen them? And how do you monitor them for safety, efficacy? And those are questions that we're answering. Those are really clinical questions. And mm -hmm. I think now that a lot of clinician scientists and clinicians are becoming involved, those are questions that hopefully will be answered, not just by us, but by our co other colleagues in the field. 
And those are questions that will really leapfrog us into a more clinical space. But realistically, I still think that we're still, you know, 10, 15 years off potentially looking at it optimistically from even starting clinical trials. But meanwhile, there are others not working on generating whole lobes or liver lacquers, but other people are currently doing clinical trials on replacing cells. So injecting cells into the liver, into the lymph node, into the omentum, or injecting things like macrophages, for example, to promote native liver recovery. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those things are being done in the clinical space right now. So it's really, the, it's a new frontier, isn't it? I, I just feel this is such an exciting area. You know, it's what you're doing, immunogenitive medicine, you know, this anti-aging medicine, they've got the immunotherapy medicine. It's just, it's such an exciting area. Are you collaborating? I think, you know, prior to this interview, we spoke a little bit on the phone about uh, my interest in following the Mayo Clinic and, and there are a few podcasts that I listen to there where they've been, I think, 3D printing or talking about 3D printing the larynx and seeding it with cells and then they were talking about injecting myocardial cells into a situation where there's been a myocardial infarction. Are you collaborating with their know-how? Uh, they, they seem to also, they're not talking about liver, but they seem to also have quite a expertise in this area. Is that something that you yeah, I, I think cross-pollinate uh, each other? We haven't had direct contact with the Mayo Clinic, um, but I am aware they do very interesting work. And interestingly, there is a hepatobiliary surgeon who runs a team answering questions just the way we are. So there's a liver group there that's quite interesting. But I will say that there are a lot of groups working worldwide. It's a big race right now. A lot Mm -hmm. of groups working worldwide to answer similar questions, some of them collaborating, some of them not. All of us have large networks of collaborators, as we do as well. So that's an important part of peace. But, you know, Melbourne also has a very strong network of stem cell scientists. And, and, you know, there are lots of groups that have been pioneers in terms of generating stem cells and in stem cell biology. Um, I can think of groups that have generated methods to grow new heart tissue in the lab from iPSCs or to grow uh, complex kidney organoids that can be used for drug testing. There are other groups that are working mm. in bioprinting, scaffold biology. So Australia and Melbourne in particular has a very high concentration of teams working in this space. So we collaborate with some of them, but we also have other national as well as international collaborators, all of which have been very helpful. Fantastic. I'm very excited to hear this. Uh, hear that this work's going on. Are students studying medicine being lectured on about this sort of field? Do you know if it's part of their, their educational mm-hmm. program? Look, I think the students who do bioscience as a preparation for postgraduate medicine are getting exposed to it, and I do know that happens at the University of Melbourne, for example. I probably think that there isn't as much of an emphasis as part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, which is certainly something that should be addressed, I agree. And being one of the frontiers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very, very grateful to you for, for running through that so expertly, Kieran, and, you know, so eruditely. Tell me, what do you do in your, in your I'll ask you a non-medical question, what do you do in your non, non-medical time? How do you sort of, you know, how do you get a break from all this and relax, relax your brain a little bit from it all? Yeah, well, good question. I, I like to read. I read a lot, um, and, I, and I consciously make a decision not to read all the time literature, scientific medical re- literature. I like to read biographies. I like to read other things that are completely unrelated to my work. Um, I like to swim. I like water. So I like long showers, long baths. I like beaches. I like the sea. Um, I like lakes, anything to do with water. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll have to come out of Karen with me. I, I love doing beach swims down there. But the, oh, we've had a lot of jellyfish actually just recently, Karen. Yeah. Millions of jellyfish. 
yeah, but yeah, so I like doing that, but I, I also like, um, I like food. So I like to <laughs> go out and try new food. Well, we're in, we're in the food capital of Australia, aren't we here? In we Melbourne. sure are, yes. Um, just one other question for you, uh, you know, advice to a, a young, like a medical student coming through, what, what advice would you give that medical student? Um, I think to keep an open mind, there's so many options these days. Um, medicine's a great degree, but it also opens the door to a lot of different things. There, um, both medicine research is making a lot of progress. So what's correct today might not be correct tomorrow. So keep an open mind. There are lots of opportunities along the way. Lots of people that are happy to take you on. So if a door opens, take it. If it doesn't work out, take the next one. Um, and have fun. I think pick something that you really enjoy. Well, I, I can see people working in your lab, Jira, will be inspired and they'll certainly have Maybe. fun with you. And, uh, you know, a little bit of your intelligence will hopefully rub off on all those people around you. So you're at the vanguard of this wonderful research. Thank you very much for joining me and, Thank and you. discussing it so beautifully. Thank you. No problems. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. I do hope you've enjoyed the conversation with Kiryu held today as much as I did. In Greek mythology, Zeus banished Prometheus to be bound by chains and to have his liver consumed, torn out painfully by an eagle each day, only to have it regenerate each night in time to have his punishment for sharing the secret of fire and thus technology with mortal humans repeated. Perhaps this is the first reference we have to the godlike possibility of tissue regeneration. Eventually, as the myth goes, Hercules killed the eagle and freed Prometheus. Today, we are witnessing a similar Herculean effort by the incredible scientists at the St. Vincent's Institute of Medical Research, including Kiru, who are at the vanguard of regenerative medicine and whom will hopefully bring the labours of their groundbreaking work into regular clinical practice. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.